0: Alright, good evening. Welcome back. It's Monday night. Uh, tonight we're gonna do part two in our series. Our series is tackling the laying the groundwork. For the development of the State of Israel, all of the things, not all of the things, obviously, many of the things that went into creating the state. What is the background of this? We started with the early 1800s last week and the Musser movement, seeing how the Jewish people were splintered into many different groups. And uh, this, mor- this this evening, I should say, we're going to be tackling the story of the Chovevei Zion, the Lovers of Zion. And how that will be, or the groups really that laid the groundwork for it itself, the laying the groundwork for the first Aliyah movement. What's uh, known as the first Aliyah, the wave of Jews that came in 1870s, uh, 1872, 1873. But uh, there's much that went in, uh, 1882, excuse me, much went in before that. And we'll be taking a look at some of those things uh, tonight. So glad you are here uh, to join in. Let us jump right in. What we're going to be addressing is the shift in the uh, mid-1800s in world Jewish history and the scene of Jewish history and the role that the state, the land of Israel, which will eventually, of course, become the state of Israel, plays in the history of our people. And what I mean by that is, when you look at Jewish history as a whole, there are many characters, there are many different countries which play different roles. And if you were to flip through any book of Jewish history, not every book covers every country throughout every century. Some countries are more central, more important than other countries. Some events are more important. Some centuries are more important. Throughout all of our long history, from the point of the exile in the year 70, Until around the 1800s, the land of Israel, as much as it is yearned for, dreamed about, does not play the central role in Jewish history because the Jews simply are not there. There's always a presence there, but the Jewish people are not there. and Therefore, when you learn Jewish history and you speak about Jewish history, we speak about the Jews of France and Germany, Spain and Portugal, of course. England has a major role. Um, And then we move to Europe throughout all of the the later part of the 20th century, of course. Um, And the land of Israel is always there. But that's not where the majority of Jews live. In the eighteen hundreds, there's a shift where into onto the scene the character of the land of Israel. If you were to like view it as a character in a in a film or in a play, becomes a main character. You cannot talk about Jewish history from the year eighteen fifty and on without it being in the context of the land of Israel. And today, obviously, since 1948, it has gotten far more significant than that even. It is now the central role. Everything that goes on in Jewish history is gonna be focused on the land of Israel, and the rest of us are just sort of watching and observing that which is taking place. But the main player has clearly shifted now, And that shift begins at this point in history. It's going to have many forms, many waves, many casts of characters. But the state of the land of Israel is going to be a fascinating drama that is not just going to grip the Jewish world, but really the world as a whole. Literally today, we all woke up to the news, uh, the continuing news story of the assassination in uh, Iran of, uh, of the nuclear uh, scientist. And I just want to mention it just for one point as we begin this story. Um, so of course, nobody knows who actually did it. And of course we know everybody's pointing fingers at Israel. And as all the news agencies report that, that Iran is of course blaming Israel, they mention because who else has the capability to do that? Who else could have pulled that off? So they sort of like shrugged their shoulders like, well, it was either the U.S. or it was Israel. How else could this have happened? Now, I'm not here to say who it was. I don't know who it was. I'm not allowed to reveal that publicly, obviously, tonight. But the, let's just state as a, as a matter of wonder that we live in an era. We're going to start just talking a little bit historically about some of the things that happened in the mid-1850s. What has happened over the last 150 years or so that we've gotten to the point where when something like that happens, it's a given in the world? Well, obviously, where else could that have come from? That alone is a statement just of the fascinating story in Jewish history of the role that Israel in, its, in all of its form plays. And we'll, we'll get back to just in putting that into the context of what we're addressing. Let's start from the beginning. The idea of the love of the land of Israel. That idea, a love of the land, dates way before any concept called Zionism. That dates all the way back to Avram Avinu, as we've been reading about in the Parshish that we're reading about in Sefer Bratius. It is the central tenet of every single believing Jew. That Hashem has given Avram and his descendants the land of Israel. He promised him to have children as numerous as the stars in heaven, and this land will be yours. There's no ands, ifs, or buts. A a believer of Torah Judaism believes, loves, yearns for the land of Israel. We have, as an exiled people for 2,000 years simply prayed, yearned, desired to, to go home. We mourn for it every year. We break a glass under the chuppah. We conclude every Pesach Seder, every Yom Kippur, L'shona, Haba, Yerushalayim. Loving the land is part and parcel of being Jewish. That's just the way that is. We can't all be there right now, but to love it, to want to be there, to yearn to be there, it's just part of who we are. And we have a concept called Zionism. That, in its early form, was a political term, meaning a political movement for the return of the Jewish people to have their own sovereignty over the land. And that, as we'll get to uh, God willing in coming weeks, was filled with many different meanings, massive amounts of controversy amongst many different factions of Jews. So just to distinguish, and one of the things that we're gonna do tonight is distinguish the idea of loving Israel dates way back. The idea of trying to come back dates before, predates, Theodor Herzl, predates the movement of Zionism. And many of the movements that we'll discuss tonight will eventually merge into the movement called Zionism and then disappear. But there was much to discuss before we actually get to Zionism. And it's important that we should be aware of the history of some of the things that actually took place before Zionism became uh, a movement. There was always a Jewish presence in the land. From the time of the destruction until today, there was always always Jews living in the land of Israel. It was a small number of Jews. Uh, uh, between the years 500 and probably 1500, um, when the exiles from Spain began to come, a minute number, probably that you can count in hundreds as far as how many Jews were actually there. Um, and they had all sorts of difficulties, of course. Um, in the years following the destruction, most of the Jews, again, the Debes HaMikdash is destroyed, the second one in the year 70, and the Jews are exiled. There's small amounts of pockets of Jews left, but eventually they're all dispersed. Whoever was left the Crusaders was a long period of time, of course, beginning in 1096 and lasting for over 200 years. That just destroyed the communities that were in the land of Israel. So that when the Ramban, the great Nachmanides, arrives in the land of Israel in 1267, fulfilling his lifelong dream to settle there, uh, they just redid his shul. Those of you who have been in the old city recently, the, the beautifully redone Ramban shul, Um, right there in the center of that plaza um, in the old city. He arrives in 1267, he cannot find a minion of Jews in Yerushalayim. He has to import Jews from Tzfat up north, just simply to be able to have a minion um, in the land. People, Jews, yes, large amounts, no. That begins to change in the mid 1500s with the exiles from Spain and Portugal. Of course, the expulsion from Spain, which was followed in 1492, followed five years later with the expulsion from Portugal, Hundreds of thousands of Jews are, are set out the road. Where did they all go when they left Spain and Portugal? So they settled throughout Europe, and of course, many of them made their way to the land of Israel. They settled in two major areas, one in Svat and one group in Yerushalayim. Uh, that was one of the many periods in Jewish history where the Jews were convinced That redemption is at hand. We could have an entire series of lectures on all the moments in Jewish history when large groups of Jews were convinced Mashiach was about to come. This was one of them. It was a just a disaster of an experience, of course, for a large number of Jews. The Jews in Spain had been there for eight hundred years, prominent, um, and here they went through this uh, calamity. and if it weren't for the world wars of our century, we would still be talking about that as possibly the greatest tragedy in, uh, in Jewish history after the destruction of the on HaMikdash. And many then returned to the land of Israel. And that gave them a sense of maybe that was the meaning or the purpose of this. We are always looking as people for meaning and purpose behind our uh, calamities and tragedies that we experience. Um, there was an episode in the late, in the early 1530s, uh, where uh, Salome the, the Magnificent had, had given one of the Jews, uh, one of his officers, like control of the city of Tiberia and many of the Jews took that as a, a, this momentous occasion where a Jew was in control of a city in Israel. They literally thought that this was going to be, we spoke about this when, uh, when the, in the great Smicha controversy where uh, there were a number of rabbis who tried to recreate Smicha to actually give uh, Smicha to recreate a, a Sanhedrin and a, a high court and many other principles. Um, At that point, the Turks are in control of the land, and uh, more or less, the Jews really did not have a great existence there. They were persecuted and discriminated against, and because it was a group from Spain and Portugal, from that point, from now the 1500s, for the next 200 plus years, the Jews in the land of Israel are almost exclusively Svartim. Meaning the Jews that had stayed from the time of the destruction were just Jews. They were the Jews who were they weren't Svatim, they weren't Ashkenazim. they were the Jews who were there from the time of the destruction. But now there was this major influx, majorism numbering in in, in thousands and maybe tens of thousands, but not more than that in in Tzfat and in Yerushalayim, and now it's the Svardek community that settles into the land of Israel, and it is almost exclusively Svardic until the late 1700s. In the late 1700s, the Ashkenazim begin to arrive, and they arrive in the late 1700s from two diverse camps, but what they shared was a religious and mystical motivation, and that was the coming of Mashiach. The two groups are the Hasidim and the Misnagdim. The Hasidim, of course, we're familiar with, founded by the Baal Shem Tov, and the Misnagdim were primarily the students of the Vilnagon, who were, Misnagdim means to be opposed to, they were the ones groups opposed to the Hasidim. We've spoken about this at length in the past as well. These two groups of Jews literally fought tooth and nail um, about the, the soul, over the soul of the Jewish people that misnagged them, those who were opposed to the Hasidim, believed that the early Hasidim were going to destroy Judaism, that they had become almost an idolatrous sect, they had changed too much and were too focused on uh, belief in the Rebbe rather than uh, belief and, and praying straight to Hashem. Our Hasidim today, uh, this is just worth noting, are very, very different than the original Hasidim, as is the case in many, many movements, when there's significant opposition to any movement. I spoke about this last week as well with the Muslim movement. When there's spe- when there's a very strong opposition to any movement, what it does is it draws the movement back towards the center and just incorporates many of the positives and cuts away the extraneous things that really can't survive the test of the opposition. And so Hasidim went through that, and what we see today um, is more or less, if you, if you change change the, the dress. Um, you know, the, the, the gap between a, a Hasid and a non Hasid. you know, there are there gaps. There's no question about it. I'm not denying that. But it's uh, less than what it was, far less. The Vilnagon, for example, forbade his followers to marry a chassid because they believed you were marrying out of the religion. That's how strong um, it was. But anyway, these two different groups, the Hasidim and the misnagdim, both arrive in the land of Israel in the late 1700s, and they were both driven by messianic, feelings that it's time to, what, so to speak, force the hand of heaven. Now, again, just a little historical context. At, at, at a certain point, you know, the Jews were exiled and the exile just goes on and on and on and it doesn't seem like there's ever an end. What What's going to happen that's ever going to change the status quo? How many hundreds of years do we go through this exile? And there was this sense of what's known in, in, uh, in Hasidic Shola uh, works as the isarusus, Isarusa Dilatasa. We have to inspire or arouse from Dilatasa means down here and that will cause an arousal up in heaven. Meaning we can be the cause down here if we'll take the first step that will, so to speak, force God's hand to hasten the coming of Mashiach. The Hasidim, of course, were led by the Baal Shem Tov, who himself tried to make it to the land of Israel, but he never succeeded. He was uh, quoted as having said, from heaven, um, they stopped him from being able to come. One thing happened to another, he wasn't able uh, to make it. There was a legend that they say about the Baal Shem Tov trying to get to Israel. He was stopped by a group of bandits along the way, as travel in those days was filled with such episodes. And he tried to, to bribe them. He offered them a half of his share in the world to come if they would take him and escort him to the land uh, of Israel, uh, as, the, as the legend goes. As I, as I, I say many times, um, the legends we have are, they say a lot about the person who the legend is about. Can't verify whether or not that did or did not actually happen. In any case, the Rebbe B'al never made it. Does not make it to the land of Israel, but his brother-in-law Rebbe Gershom Ketover does arrive. Um, Baal Shem Tov married Gershon's sister, um, in around the year 1742. So mid-1700s, we now have from Ashkenaz, Hasidim coming to the land of Israel. And he obviously came with a group of families and followers. He originally lands in Hebron. Um, and then by 1753, we find him already founding one of the first Ashkenazic communities in Jerusalem. So this is now 250 years after the expulsion from Spain and Portugal, 250 years of of Sephardic presence in Yerushalayim and in Safat, and now we have, in the late mid-1750s, the first Ashkenazic community is being uh, founded. Rav Nachman of Breslov, another of the Hasidim, will make an appearance uh, about 40, 50 years later, in the late 1700s. He does not stay long, he eventually returns to Uman, um, as many are familiar with where Rav Nachman is buried, but the uh, legends of his presence in the land of Israel and stories about him in the land of Israel like spread throughout the Hasidic world, um, and that was a big draw as well, um, and Hevron becomes a strong Lubavitch community. Chavron community will, of course, go through many tragedies along the way. But in the mid 17th, late 1700s, it became a uh, a strong Lubavitch a Hasidic uh, community. So the the Hasidim begin to come. The Misnagdim, as I mentioned, the students of the Vilna Gaon, who. I don't know if it's not coincidentally, but similar to the Baal Shem Tov, he himself did not make it. He also set out on the journey to go to the land of Israel um, and did not make it. We have records of him attempting to go and, and records that he never made it and turned, uh, uh, turned back. But, uh, you know, again, I, and I just stress this, these are the Ramban, the Vilnagon, the Balshemtov. The desire to return to the land of Israel has preceded the concept of the, the term Zionism. This is a, an old, from Avram Avinu, the desire to go back. But his students, um, Rabbi Menachem and Rabbi Srelov of Shklov, they both did make it to the land of Israel with their families and followers in the early 1800s, and they begin now a misnagdisha, a, a community, Ashkenaz community in the land of Israel. Now, again, despite the fact that the misnagdim and the chasidim were at each other's throats in Europe, um, in Israel they were so small and life was so difficult, um, it bonded them together. Uh, these two groups, which couldn't get along um, in, in Europe, but in the new land, in the homeland of Israel, found a way to become one Ashkenaz community while they were there. These early years, let's say from around 1750 to 1850, these hundred years was a very difficult time for those who arrived in the land of Israel. Um, I, I've quoted Rabbi Wein before as saying it was pretty much a place to go to die that's what that's what the land there was no economy it was not a place to raise children schools were were just you didn't have the systems that you needed to raise a family so there were a few jews who who were the real pioneers who went and established uh, communities but uh, it was small in number and if anything people would go there as they were aged Older, if they wanted to die, dying, being buried in the land of Israel is a tremendous merit, as discussed in the words of the sages um, many, many, many times. So people would go there in those days... Today we live in a day in, in an era where uh, after 120 years, if a person desires to be buried in Israel so they could live their life wherever they want in the exile, and it costs uh, a few thousand dollars, you could be flown and buried in Israel, you don't have to go there. In those days, you were buried where you died. It, it, there just wasn't an option to, to do anything other than that. So if a person desired to be buried in Israel, they wouldn't move there uh, at the end of their life, and uh, that's where they would die. These groups of Jews... In these hundreds of year in the hundred years, 1750, are motivated. They're they they sense it's we can do something, we could force God's hand, we could begin to build uh, the community and bring the Messiah, had a tremendous amount of determination and persistence, just the tenacity that was necessary, um, is, is very hard to describe what life was like. And this is of course not to take anything away from the halutzim of the early 1900s, we've all seen pictures and black and whites and uh, short videos, not to take anything away from what the early settlers did in the early 1900s, just to say there was 150 years of Jewish community in the land of Israel as we began to come back even before that. Travel through Europe in 1750 to 1850, not simple at all. They arrive in a new climate, new disease, no economy, lack of food, and and all of these Ashkenazim now have to deal with a new antagonist, that being the Arabs. The Ashkenazi Jews arriving, they've been dealing with the Russian Tsar and the Christians and all of the problems that plague Jewish history in Europe throughout the years, which, you know, an enemy that you know is an enemy you can deal with and they arrive in the land of Israel and it's under the Ottomans. And for most of these Ashkenazi Jews, um, this is a whole new world um, of addressing all the challenges that exist where all of a sudden the Jews arrive, just like today, just on a much smaller scale. Why are you here? Well, we believe this is our homeland and you're dealing with the Ottomans. The Ottoman Turks are in control and they've been in control for several hundred years. And I um, probably don't appreciate anyone coming and saying, this is our homeland. And that was a very difficult uh, period of time, obviously. Uh, the stories that are told of clearing rocks, again, this we're familiar with from the Chalutzim. It was a land that was inhospitable. It required so much work just to be able to, uh, to get anything out of it. There were specific events which were uh, disastrous. For example, there's a cholera epidemic in Tzfat, in 1816, which was shortly followed thereafter by an earthquake, literally destroyed the city and, and took hundreds, uh, hundreds and hundreds of lives. Just as an example, um, this Rebbe Yisrael uh, uh, Shklov, which I mentioned, the student of the Vilna Gone who settled in an in, intzfat, wrote a sefer called the Pas Shulchan. little means the bread of the table. That's, it's a takeoff of the Shulchan Aruch. The, the Rabbi Yosef Cairo wrote the major book, the major work on Jewish law called the Shulchan Aruch, which means the set table, which was the term he used for, uh, I'm going to lay out in front of you everything that you need. So, uh, several hundred years later, he wrote that in the 1500s. So Rabbi Yisrael Shkav now returns to the land of Israel, and he wrote what's called the Pas Shulchan, the bread of the table, which was a work on the agricultural halacha, which had not been practiced in Literally hundreds and hundreds of years because the land of Israel has its own unique series of agricultural laws. It's not even included in the Shulchan Aruch. You can't find these laws in the book of Jewish law because it wasn't relevant to the Jews living in Europe. So he set out to write a monumental work which became, this is in the early 1800s, which be, would become the centerpiece of Today in Israel, this is already dealt with for 200 years, but this was the first work bringing up to date with all the agricultural things going on, the laws that were... Um, that were needed, which would be followed by about 50, 60 years later, apparently, Rabbi Yichel Michal Epstein, who wrote a sefer called the Orecha uh, Shulchan, which was an abridged version of a book of Jewish law. So he wrote, and again, Rav Yichel Michal, dies in 1908, so he's writing in the late 1800s, um, a Orecha uh, Shulchan Ha'asid, the future book of law that we need, in which he's addressing all the laws that are going to be in existence when the Jews return to the land of Israel, agriculture, the Beit to the Sanhedrin, the high court. These th- works were being written. It was being addressed because the Jews were beginning to trickle back and it was becoming uh, relevant. But in any case, what I wanted to share was that Rabbi Yisrael, who wrote again, the Pas on the bread of the table, in in, uh, in Svat in his introduction, writes about Yisurei Eretz Yisrael, the suffering of settling the land of Israel, the Gemara, which he notes. The Talmud says, three things are acquired only with Yisur. And you can only acquire three things through hard work, through suffering, through difficulty. The three things are the land of Israel, Torah, and olam haba. You can't acquire those three things if you don't put in the effort. And it's going to come at a cost to acquire those three things. They're not free, so to speak, the Talmud says. So the land of Israel is one of the things that can only be acquired through yesur, through difficulty. So he writes that in the cholera epidemic of 1816, uh, I think it was, if I have the date correct. Yeah, 1816. So he wrote that he lost his wife and all of his children but one to cholera. His entire family was wiped out. Um, his wife and all of his children, and one daughter survived, and then that daughter was killed in the earthquake that happened shortly thereafter. And he literally writes how he had to flee to Yerushalayim with nothing. And you I had manuscripts, my forget them at my, I have nothing but the shirt on my back, um, as I flee from, from uh, Tzva to move now to Yerushalayim. And so there's just, I mentioned it just as the, there was a level of personal suffering and difficulty that the Jews that were there, which is just unimaginable um, in, in the era that, uh, that they are in. There was a, a strange quirk in history that Rabbi Wein points out, Rabbi, Rabbi Wein, that the Turks agreed to. Now the Turks were known as the old man of, uh, the sick man of Europe. Uh, They were like teetering on being toppled for for a long time, uh, as uh, empires are wont to do. It took a long time for them to build up what they had, and then they got sick, so to speak, and until it actually fell apart. Um, the end of the First World War. They agreed with the European powers um, due to the holy nature of Palestine and probably also due to the fact that they didn't want to be responsible, that the foreign nationals that would come to live in Palestine would be under the protection of their original government. Meaning that the Turks said, if a Jew from Russia moves to Jerusalem, we're not responsible for him. Now, partly that was done to say, like, it's yes, it's an international area, so uh, every you know you're on your own, and therefore we're not responsible. We don't want Russia being angry at us if their uh, citizens are murdered by marauding bands of that. So it's under the Russians' problem if you come. Now, for whatever the reasons why they did that, what that created was a rather odd quirk in history, because the Russian Jew who immigrated to Israel became productive protected by the Russian consul, so to speak, in Jerusalem. When he lived in Russia, he was persecuted without end. But now that he's in Palestine, the Russians were most interested in having a foothold, as is today the same story as was many years ago, so the Jew who moves is now protected by the same government that would, could care less about him when he was back home. And the same was true for the French and the English and the German. All of these Ashkenazi Jews who make their way to Palestine are actually given protection by those original governments. The local Svardim, who have been there for 300 years are persecuted by the Turks the same way they had been for 300 years. And this created a very odd balance that the newcomer Ashkenazim actually were in a more honored, protective, and had the ability to flourish to whatever extent they could more than their much longer tenured Svardic neighbor who remained under Turkish control um, and was uh, persecuted uh, as such helps explain some of the dynamics that were there. Um, the, the Turks themselves had all sorts of problems. There was a, they were conquered by Egypt in 1831 and then there was a peasant revolution and it brought it back to the Turks. There's turmoil in the Ottoman Empire, and meanwhile, while all is going on, the Jews, during this time, slowly trickle in. I, I just want to share with you, you could look this up on Wikipedia, it's, it's almost, it's, it's hilarious in some ways. Between the years 1838 and 1876, um, if, you, if you look up population of Jerusalem, so on Wikipedia, they will report 18 different census reports that were taken between those so 40 years or so, just under 40 years. Now they don't have, they have 18 that actually have information. Sometimes they didn't, they, there were Jews, Arabs, and Christians living in Jerusalem at the time. So they don't always have full information. 18 years from different places, all sorts of different reports, some are official ottoman, some are from British observers, some are from this one, from that one, uh, reports of the population in Yerushalayim. The total population ranges from 11,000 to 36,000. This is again between the years 1838, 1876. Just as a point of reference, the city of Hampstead, or the town of Hampstead, if that's whichever the right way to say it, has approximately seven to 8,000 people in it. And Cote St. Luke has about 35,000. Those are the numbers today. If, if I have the numbers correct when I moved in, that's what I remember people telling me. So like, that's what we're talking about. The total population of Yerushalayim is somewhere between 11,000 and 36,000 during those 40 years. Of the 18 different census that we have the reports of, nine of them report that the Muslims were in the majority. Nine of them show that the Jews were in the majority and the range as to how much were in the majority shifts back and forth to whether or not the Jews were in the majority by six, 7,000 more, whether or not the Muslims were in So what do we know about that time? We know nothing. All we know is that it was clearly not clear who had the majority. Depending on who was doing the census and what agenda they had, we clearly get different numbers. We know there's around 30,000, give or take people in Yerushalayim and it's somewhat split between the Muslims and the Jews. Beginning in 1882, which is the first wave of Aliyah, as it's defined, the first official Aliyah in 1882, which follows. We'll talk about that, the first wave in a, in a subsequent class more in depth. But in that, that's when the Russian pogroms then really kicked off a mass immigration. Fifteen to 25,000 Jews come in that first 1882, 1883. Beginning then, until 1967, so within the next 80 years, the population of Yushalayim will explode to over 260,000 people. We go from about, again, 36,000 in 1876. 1967, a little bit less than 100 years later, we're at 260,000 residents of Jerusalem, And beginning in 1882, there will never again be a census that puts the Muslims in the majority. When the Jews begin to come in 1882, it's a clear Jewish majority in Jerusalem with nearly 200,000 of the 260,000 by 1967, and we're double the number of Arabs very shortly after 1882. So the shift in Yerushalayim, again, always with Jews there, but it was a very small community, even in the 1500s when the exiles from Spain and Portugal came, several hundred, maybe a thousand or so Jews in, the, in Yerushalayim, maybe. And that number stays around all the way through the 1800s in which even in the censuses that had us in the majority, we were 8,000, 9,000, 10,000 beginning in 1882 that explodes and gets us to where we are today is, you know, well, well more than that. But again, by, right by 1967, 200,000 Jews are in Yerushalayim. Um, some uh, uh, it's hard to know what the validity of the census, but in 1850 as a whole, there were about 350,000 residents um, with only about 14,000 um, about Jews in. in 1850. How did these Jews um, uh, survive? How did they manage in, in this, uh, during this time? So it was actually impossible for them to support themselves. It just, it just wasn't something, there wasn't the economy. They didn't have the ability to farm. They didn't know what they were doing. It wasn't, it wasn't feasible. Um, Rabbi Wine jokes, and I quote him often, I apologize. I'm not sure if I even have to apologize for that, but uh, he's my Rebbe again in Jewish history. Um, jokes that it was divinely inspired that the land of Israel should not be able to self-sustain until the redemption happens. Because if it were true that you can earn a good and easy living in Israel, like what would we still be doing here? Everybody would be back. And it's not right, the time isn't there for the full redemption yet. So God has ordained, so to speak, that you cannot survive there. Now again, we're looking back 2020, things have, even just 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago was vastly more difficult than it is today. Not saying it's easy today, Um, but that's the way that it's been. It's been a difficult way and that began from the very very beginning again. He concluded his little, um, you know, a pun on uh, on that existence that the the land of Israel and eventually the state of Israel became the single greatest schnurring apparatus in all of Jewish history. The amount of funds that have been funneled in to Israel to keep the Jews alive there uh, over the last, let's say, two hundred years, it makes it the single greatest fundraising apparatus that's ever existed in the Jewish world. Maybe the world as a whole, but I can't if we can say that. He quoted. A story uh, from Milton Friedman who was a no, a no, uh, a no sorry, be Nobel Prize uh, economist um, here in the States uh, in the States who was invited by the Israeli government to study their economy and see like you know what what they could do how they can improve so uh, the story goes so he, he did his report he reads through all of their uh, the numbers and eventually comes back to them and says. Um, this doesn't make any sense. Your your numbers are so far off. It's like one thing to run a deficit budget, but you can't possibly survive on the numbers that you're showing. He sits and down. He says, what are you hiding? I, I, this, this can't work. I know you're hiding something. He says, no, oh, we're not hiding anything, but you should just know that every organization does fundraising. They go to the States. They go here. This one, it's like there's an entire underground economy that exists in which individuals and institutions and the government all go out to raise funds to be able to make this thing work. So he said, well, you know, what do you want from me? All the books that I've written. And <laughs> that doesn't apply to a normal functioning country. I can't help you. Um, if that's, but that's how we function and that's how, uh, in a way, we continue to function. It's of note, I remember, we pointed this out when the hurricane in Houston took place a couple years back. It, it made the news that the Israeli government sent a million dollars to aid the recovery effort to the Jewish community of Houston. It's a big deal because that was the symbolic switch in which money has funneled in a one-way direction since, again, the early 1800s. It has been the diaspora taking care of the Jews in Israel. And that move, that move in which the Israelis sent funds to the states to help them was this seismic shift in how the balance of power is, and it, it was, it's a big deal. It is a big deal as we continue uh, rolling towards uh, our full redemption just to see Israel becoming the state of Israel, the modern land of Israel becoming uh, what is. In any case, in those days, we were very far from any money going out of the land of Israel. It was a one-directional funneling. Money went from outside in. It was known as the Chalukah. Chalukah means the division. Uh, there was a tzedakah organization. It was basically called the Kupas Rabbi Meir Balhanes, Hanes, which was taken after the great sage from the Talmud, Rebbe Meir. And uh, there were yellow pushkas throughout Europe. Every home had a yellow pushka, and they would collect, uh, you know, pennies would be collected in every home. Every home would give their pennies to the local rav, the little town, the little shtetl with 50, 80 families. The local rav would collect from his 50, 80 families and go to the next bigger town. It would go to the next bigger town. Eventually, it would end up in the big towns throughout Europe, and those rabanim would get the money to the land of... Israel. Once it would get to the land of Israel, it would be divided there amongst all the different families and organizations in Israel. So that the entire Europe was basically funneling money to the land of Israel. This was an entirely illegal operation in almost every country in Europe. Uh, sending money to a foreign country, particularly to the Ottoman Turks who were at war in one way or another with most of the other countries, so you're sending money to an enemy country, was completely illegal and uh, almost every single rough throughout Europe was liable to be arrested at any given time, which was a dangerous way to live because people have enemies. Um, but that's, that's the way that it worked. Um, It was a terrible system, not just because of the fact that every Jew living in their home country was doing something illegal, which most of the times was fine, but was always something that was in the back of your mind. Um, But it was an an intrinsically problematic and unfair way of dividing up money. Now, Now the money comes in. So you can just imagine who's in charge of dividing that up. How do you figure out which organization is more important? Everybody thinks... Their organization is the most important. Without us, nothing can happen. This family is more important. This family is bigger, more prominent. You, you can just imagine the problems that uh, this created. So it, what eventually happened was every, organiz, every group created their own mini Kupas Rebbe Meir The Hungarians sent to the Hungarians and the Russians sent to the Russians and the Germans sent to the Germans. And then the Hasidim had and the misnagdim had. Everybody tried to do it, but that was the system. It was known as the Chalukah, and it was simply the way that the Jews in Israel during this time period were able to survive. Sir, Mo- Sir Moses Montefiore, um, one of the, uh, the, the heroes of the Jewish people in the early days, arrives in Palestine in 1839, and he is dedicated to promoting Jewish growth that we can stand on our own, that the Jews that were there would have what they need to self-support. And he came not just wealthy on his own, but he was also the executor of an American Jew by the name of Judah Turo who many will note from many things named Turo in in his memory, Judah Turo had left his estate and wanted it to be um, spent in Israel and appointed Sir Moses Montefiore to be his executor. And so he comes and he's gonna start spending money to help the Jews become uh, self-sufficient. One of the most famous things that he did that you all have seen or those of you who have had the privilege to be in Yerushalayim is the famous windmill um, that he built in Yerushalayim right outside the walls of the old cities in the late 1850s with a very simple plan of let's build a windmill. They'll be able to grind their own wheat into flour. They'll be able to support themselves. It works everywhere else in Europe, which, of course, is a great plan, except we all know already that nothing works in Israel the way that it works everywhere else in the rest of the world. So it was actually, unfortunately, a pretty big failure as a uh, as a plan of a windmill, um, there were roughly twenty days a year with enough wind for it actually to be strong enough. Because the wheat in that grew in the land of Israel was a tougher breed than that which was in Europe, it it, it just didn't really uh, didn't really work. I'm sure there's a lot of symbolism in the idea of not having enough wind to be able to crush the tough wheat of the land of Israel and the uh, the meaning that behind that. But we'll we'll leave that. He created also he built a printing press and a textile factory pouring a lot of money into be able to uh, support the Jews. He begins to buy land as well outside of Yerushalayim. Mishkanot uh, Nanim becomes the very first settlement outside of the wall of the old city in 1860 again so we're in that time period where the Jews are beginning to uh trickle in this is still before the first wave of 1882 um and which was eventually renamed Yemin Moshe after Sir Moses Montefiore um no one would stay there at night. There are many stories. You can go there now if you go on a, on a walking tour. They'll tell you all about it. Um, how the, uh, the Arabs, the local Arabs, it just wasn't a safe place to spend the night. So the Jews would go there during the day. They would open up shops and businesses. But it did not become a residential area because nobody would say they would go back into the old city walls um, and live there. And that remained that way for almost 20 years until Nachalat Shiva, the inheritance of the seven, um, which was named in 1879 of the first seven families who created a settlement and were able to actually live there. They stayed outside of the walls of the old city, which eventually they developed the Mea Sha'arim, and many of the other neighborhoods outside. This is now the beginning of the development of Yerushalayim. Again, we're in the late 1800s, where the Jews are now not only in the walled city, uh, at a clear majority of the old city are Jews, but now already beginning to expand outside of the walls. The the, the Navi, in the, the Navi of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, describe in a prophecy of the rebuilding of what it was like building the second Beit HaMikdash. When the Jews returned, how they would build with a shield in one har- in one arm and bricks and mortar in the other. How they needed to defend themselves from the attacks while at the same time trying to lay the bricks. Um, and that's literally what the Jews were doing at this point in time as well, trying to build up these communities um, and, and being afraid literally uh, for their lives. In the background of all of this, we get to our topic for tonight. Then we're finishing up with this. So those, it's already been a while. The Chovevei Tzion, the Chovevei Tzion, um, begins to take hold in the 1860s. The idea that we need to support these Jews. The Jews that have come, they've been there now for a while. It was the late 1700s, remember, that the Hasidim and the students of the Vilna Gaon begin trickling in. It's a steady trickle throughout these 1800s. We already have Sir Moses Montefiore in 1839 beginning to build land, building the windmills, uh, setting up these, uh, these communities, um, and many of the other things that we have been uh, learning about. So in the 1860s or throughout Europe, the idea takes hold that this is something that needs to be supported. The time is right. The Jews have come back. The Ottoman Empire is weak. um, And we need to support both new immigration, uh, which also goes together with how bad things are in Europe. Um, And it it did not begin as an official movement as much as just the inspiration of the people that the time has come to return and that the Jews that are there are living in an unsustainable system. They have no means of support. And these groups, they were called again Chove Veitsion, were a mixed bag, a strange mixed bag of supporters. There were very many pious rabbis who were part of this. from Shmuel Moliver, the Netziv. Um, there were radical atheists. There were Maskilim, who we learned about last week. These, uh, the secular enlightened Jews, yet Hasidim. It was simply the group of Jews who felt we need to go home. And there were various reasons why the Jews felt they need to go home. And many, much of it was driven by a religious belief that the land belongs to us. It's our land, and we have the right to return. And we have the theological powers we mentioned before to force God's hand. And listen, now is as good as ever. The exile has gone on and on and on. Now is the time that we need to do it. This is already beginning in the 1860s. By 1881, again, the Russian pogroms will actually officially kick off the first Aliyah in which we'll have nearly 25,000 Jews come, which was an unheard of number um, at that time. And this is in the years prior to that. A couple of points. The, the religious philosopher behind it was a uh, relative by the name of Ritzvihers Kalisher big Talmud Chacham. If you look him up, you'll see a, a, a picture of him, a huge kippah on his head, long white beard, the most traditional-looking religious Jew you can imagine uh, in Prussia. And he was a well-published Talmud Chacham. On Shulchan Aruch, he wrote. On Chumash, he a on the Haggadah. And he publishes in 1862. 1862, this is well before the first Zionist Congress. He publishes a, a sefer called Drishat Zion. Drishat Zion comes from Seek Out Zion or the Seeking out of Tzion, which is a takeoff of the phrase of uh, Tzion Eindorish, which the Navi in, in, in cries, no one is seeking out Zion. So he wrote a book, no, we are, and he laid forth the following philosophy, that salvation, the redemption, which has been promised us by all of the prophets, can only come about in a natural way. We need to do this. We've been waiting around, like waiting, when is Mashiach going to show up? no. Enough waiting. We need to make this happen. This is a a religious Jew writing in the 1860s. We need to do this. And the way that we're going to do that is the immigration to Israel. It's time to go home. He argued in halacha that it was permitted to bring korbanot, to bring sacrifices in Yerushalayim, which is a major, major halachic discussion. Well before his time at Ered the Rambam, Maimonides in the 1100s already is very involved in such a discussion on various passages of the Talmud and understanding if the Jew, it wasn't relevant, the Jews weren't there. But he said, we need to go back and, and we can actually go back and bring various offerings. This has to do a lot with the idea of the sanctity of the land of Israel, the sanctity of Yerushalayim, the sanctity of the place of the base of Miktosh, the discussion that we have today still about is a Jew allowed to go onto the Temple Mount, um, which is a big discussion in many different parties uh, and ideas about it. It all centers on this idea of is it still considered so sanctified that we could actually bring a sacrifice? So he argued, yes, you can. And he said, there's no future for the Jews in Russia, which he was uh, a man ahead of his time, 100% uh, correct, all that was going to be brought uh, within the 100 years from the time that he, uh, that he said that. Now, not only did he produce that philosophy of we need to do this on our own with an immigration, he then had uh, his, his book, was a call to action. And he said, we need to raise money. We need to buy and cultivate land in Israel. And we need to found, he, needed, he wanted to found an agricultural school in Israel or France to train young Jews how to be farmers. It's an amazing thing, historically speaking, that in 1862 this was coming out of the religious camp. That's what we need to do. We need to learn how to be farmers again. We need to be ready to go back and buy and cultivate the land. Um, it was uh, the Mikveh Yisrael, which is an agricultural school which existed in Tel Aviv, was founded in 1870 and still exists, you could see where it is today, um, Was was built off of this call of, we're going to do this, we are going to become farmers and buy up uh, the land. And he added one more thing that we need to form a, mil- a Jewish military guard for the security of the colony. We need to protect ourselves. The Jews that are there, they're afraid to live in their homes that they're building outside of the wall. We need to produce an army to protect them. That was all coming from the religious camp. Meanwhile, at the same time, there were two secular books which had a great influence on the, this Chove Veitziin, those lovers of Zion, these organizations that begin, began. Uh, Moses Hess, uh, was a German philosopher, wrote a book called Rome and Jerusalem. And it wasn't about Rome, ancient Rome. It was about, he wrote, look, what's going on in Rome today? It had been broken down into so many different factions, and they unified themselves. Just like they found a way to come together and unify, we can do this as well. And he also put forth a plan for the Jews to come back to a secular book. It was not religious. And Liam uh, Pinsker wrote a book called The Auto Emancipation, which was again also a secular book. About how we can control our own destiny and bring about wasn't redemption, just bring about a return to the homeland. And these groups um, were actually brought together by Leon Pinsker officially in, in the early 1880s into the name the Choveve Zion to support. Um, to support the return of the Jews under all of these different ideas. And again, what it did is it took all of these different streams that were beginning to form of, uh, of moving back of getting things together into one single organization. That organization only lasts until the first Zionist Congress in the early 1900s. And then that basically everything gets taken over by that and everything merges in. So it only had a a short official existence, but it was the product of all the years before it of this idea of the Jewish return. Now, the idea of the Jewish return did not come with all without opposition like all good movements have. Um, and the opposition also came from all sides. The reform movement, which was taking hold in Germany, was very opposed to it because of their nationalistic bent. Bent of we're Germans. Uh, uh, You know, are you a German Jew or a Jewish German? So the reform movement was, we are Germans. That's who we are. And the idea of wanting to go back somewhere else was antithetical to the belief of their nationalistic approach. They actually removed Jerusalem from all, there are no references to Jerusalem in uh, in their Siddur. Interesting to note, historically speaking, that's come back. The reform movement has has had a major shift. When you learn history and you just see how movements take time and what happens, um, but in the beginning they removed all of that and a lot of that has, uh, has actually come back. But anyway, they were very opposed to the Chovah movement of the support of to set up our own Jewish army and military and to learn how to be agricultural farmers in the land of Israel and to raise money to send to Israel and to support immigration to Israel. It wasn't part of their program at all. The religious parties were also opposed to it. Even Rav Shemesh and Hirsch in Germany actually agreed with the reformists that he was fighting, that this was a bad idea. And they, the religious Jews had different reasons for being opposed to it, um, which were primarily two. Number one is that uh, there were too many seculars who were involved, um, and therefore the movement itself was losing its sense of religious redemptive quality. It was Becoming a secular irreligious group, and number two, the whole idea of forcing god 's hand that we can move redemption along is not a simple idea and was not agreed upon by jews when we when we 'll speak at length about the idea of Zionism, um, there are many passages in the Talmud that has great debate over many many years whether or not we are allowed or not allowed to do this. are we allowed to for can we return in mass? Or are we supposed to wait? There were many, many Jewish camps, uh, still till today, who believe it's our job in the exile to wait. It's our job to sit here. It, we're not just here because it's not the right time for me to move. It, not just like I don't know how I'd make a living. I, I have other. It's not because I can't come up with a good enough reason to go. It's because I'm not supposed to go. My job in exile is to wait until Mashiach comes to bring me home. That's an approach. They're different approaches. So many were opposed to this original movement. We live in a day in an age. It's you know we're blessed to live in the in the era that we live in, where the state of Israel has existed for over seventy years. This movement back has existed for over a hundred years. So history sometimes you know answers itself the questions that were burning questions in the nineteen forties. Are you allowed to go back? Can we go back? Can we set up a state? It's there are those are irre- irrelevant debates to us where. The state exists, the state is, as I started tonight with, is so powerful, is so feared in the Arab worlds that when something, as I started, like, happens and they say, who else could, it? who else has the ability to do this? So we live in a day and age where that's the reality of, of the state of Israel um, and almost, I think we're, we're just at about half of the world Jewish population has returned home, so we don't have those debates uh, of is it theologically Allowed to move back to Israel. I don't remember ever being at a Shabbos table where that was still being debated of, is is it appropriate to go back? It's a question of, of course, half the world Jewish population is back. It's home. We're back in control. What an amazing thing. Is it right for me to go back? Maybe yes, maybe no. We're all still here. So the answer we've all answered is basically no. But it's it's not a theological debate where we sit down. How many of us would say, the reason why I don't move to Israel is because I'm philosophically opposed to it. I've never heard anyone say that. But we're not there for other reasons. But in those days, this was a big, it was a theological, philosophical debate. And uh, that was the opposition that they had. Uh, what eventually, of course, happens is the secularists do, in fact, completely take over the movement. Uh, the, this movement, which was with the Nitziv, I didn't even really share much, Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, was one of the Rashi Yeshiva of Valashin, the great Yeshiva of Valazhin. The Rashi Yeshiva of Valashin was a member of the Chove Tzion. It's like hard to exactly express what that means. The the pinnacle of Jewish religious Talmudic scholarship was a member of this movement because it had religious connotations and religious Jews were part of it. But it was eventually taken over by the secularists. When when Herzl begins the World Zionist Congress all of the Chovetin basically join into that and the idea of it being a religious movement falls by the wayside. Now historically speaking, the significance of that we'll 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 talk about what what happened because of that. Um but what began as with some with some religious uh undertones did did not have that when the actual Zionist movement begins. And then of course it will come back will be such a thing called religious Zionists, but the original movement becomes a very secular uh, movement and all of the religious aspects basically fall by the wayside um, because it becomes something that they really can't be part of, not because they were philosophically opposed it for returning to the land. Returning to the land again is a very Jewish idea. Uh, but because it wasn't an organization that they were uh, part of. Last thing for tonight, um, needs to be mentioned uh, uh, the Baron Edmund Rothschild, who uh, passed away in 1934. He was uh, one of the French Jewish members of the massive Rothschild banking family, many of whom were in England. He was from the, uh, the, the French uh, side. In Israel, he's simply known as the Baron Rothschild. But in, in the world, there were many Baron Rothschild. If you just Google Baron Rothschild, there were there were several long families and and um, but in Israel, he Baron Edmund Rothschild is the Baron Rothschild. Uh, he was a philanthropist and uh, who looked for opportunities to to give. And he had a meeting with this from Shmuel Moliver, who was again one of the other religious Jews, big Talmidei Chachamim, who were part of the Chove Veitzion. And Shmuel Moliver has a meeting with the Baron Edmund Rothschild and convinces him of this momentous historical opportunity in the late 1800s that we can reshape the land and buy the land and settle the land and the Jews are coming back again. This is before Zionism was a name. We can, we can take grab the moment and, uh, and Edmund Rothschild is taken by this and it becomes his life's work to settle and develop the land of Israel. Uh, in Hebrew, he's known as Hanediv Hayedua, the great benefactor of the land. It's estimated that he spent more than $50 million um, before he died in the land of Israel, which I looked up, I just plugged in you know, today. What is 50 million? I chose the day of his death, 1934. $50 million in 1934 is today over $973 million in today's... Uh, value in terms of what he pumped into the land of Israel. Rishon Letzion, Zichron Yaakov, Petach Tikva, Binyamina. The Carmel Winery was founded by him. And in in order to found the Carmel Winery, he founded the first Jewish factory which produced wine bottles amongst many, many, many other things that he was involved with. His name, the Rothschild name, is everywhere in the land in Israel. Um, Upon his death, he left a note Um, A Last Will and Testament of sorts, in which he writes, I have great thanks to the Almighty that I was given the privilege of participating in helping the Jewish people return to their ancient homeland and have even begun to see the fruits of my labor in my own lifetime. His children, after his death purchased and financed the Knesset uh, in his honor. In the Knesset today, there is a room downstairs that is dedicated to the baron Rothschild and all of his many accomplishments in uh, in the land of uh, Israel. And uh, that is some of the background of the uh, Chovevei Tzion, um, the groups that began uh, before, before the Zionist movement takes hold, the return of the Jewish people's inner yearning to come home, to resettle, to return, and uh, as things get bad in Europe they come in droves that's what we're going to learn about Mirtz Hashem we'll talk about many other events I think we're going to be the Dreyfus Affair I believe is the next thing that we'll talk about Mirtz Hashem uh, next week as we begin to this uh, laying the groundwork all the things that we'll talk about from the late now 1800s to to 1948 I'm really going to get to the end of the First World War again uh, tonight uh, not tonight uh, this this winter Um, that is the plan really just to talk about some of these ideas uh, that went on during this time period which I personally find just fascinating and uh, great information that that we should be uh, familiar with and appreciate those who who really did all of that work um, uh, in laying the groundwork and sacrifice so much to be able to to do so. So that's it for uh, this evening.